All right, we're going we're gonna to finish this chapter tonight, Lord willing. So another, uh, this is another transitional period, Revelation chapter 10 and Revelation 11, really almost all the way through chapter 14 is kind of a transition time. Remember when John is writing this, it's not necessarily all chronological in the sense of every event is happening upon itself. He kind of, it's almost a parenthesis. He, he kind of takes a pause and gives us another perspective for a minute. So we see a different side. We've already witnessed um, most, over half of the judgments upon the earth, the seal judgments and most of the tr- trumpet judgments up to this point. And once we get to the seventh trumpet judgment, which is the opening of the, the, the bold judgments or the, the vile judgments, as uh, some refer to, um, once we get to that, like literally, it's going to usher in the end times in a, in a much rapid pace. Uh, but what we're, what we're witnessing here in these couple chapters is really kind of a, the middle point of the tribulation. We'll look more in depth about that probably next week in the, in the next couple weeks as well. The, we believe the tribulation period is seven years, so this comes around the, the three and a half year period mark. But let's go ahead and start reading, and then we'll dive into it tonight. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he said, or, um, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth. I mean, just as you imagine this, you know, this mighty angel stepping down from heaven, and one foot on the sand and one foot on the shore, uh, in the sense of one on land and one in the sea. Verse number three, and cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. Now this is very interesting because this is the only time in the book of Revelation uh, that I know of um, that John is told to not write. Everything else he is told to write. But this is one time where he's told to stop writing, seal it up, seal up those things which he has seen. So that's what it says. Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. Now, we need to understand that not, we don't know everything that's going to happen in the end times. We know what God has given us. That's the important thing. There's even more to the story and more to the narrative than is even in the book of Revelation. Because John can't write everything down that is ever going to happen. There's just so much, so much detail. But verse number five, and the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and, and the sea. So he's talking really to God. Verse number seven, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound the mystery of God, should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go, and take the little book which is open, this little book that was referenced in verse number two, that is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me that little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter and Um, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was as uh, in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he had said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. 
So this is a great chapter, and there's really so much that we can learn here. But I want you to understand, as we continue our study in Revelation, that you know we've already witnessed a lot of horrific judgments happen on the earth up until this point in time. And really, when you look back, even at the end of chapter number 9, as I mentioned the last time we met, it's a sad verse, sad series of verses where it says in verse number 21, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. You know, when I was younger, I often wondered, as, as I would hear messages or study myself, the book of Revelation, how, how could people get to the place where they clearly see truth in front of them and yet don't repent from it? And yet don't turn from their wickedness, turn from their sin. But I think as we are all seeing in, in our present society, there are a lot of people that clearly have the truth in front of them, and yet they still choose not to believe it, right? So imagine how much worse it's going to be at the end times. You know, so it's already opening my eyes up just even 2020 with what's happened in our own country, how people are clearly being led away from the truth and believing a lie that they believe is truth, but it's going to get so much worse at the end times to where when you read this as a Christian, you're like, this is truth. How, how could you not see all of this judgment, all of this horror, this demonic creatures coming up from the abyss in chapter 9? How could you not turn from your wickedness? How could you continue living in sin? Well, I mean, the same question could be asked today, couldn't it? How could people continue living in sin with all of the truth out there in God's word, with all of the truth that is being preached? People choose to believe what they want to believe. And it really, it, it, it saddens you when you think about it. But all of the effects of the trumpet judgments and the sealed judgments have, have caused mighty devastation upon the earth up to this point. And in this passage here in chapter 10 and chapter 11, it's really an interlude between the sixth and seventh judgment. This chapter revolves around a mighty angel. And just like much of the book of Revelation, there's a lot of speculation as to who this mighty angel is. Now, just very quickly, some people think, and there are two sides to a lot of the study of Revelation. Uh, I've, I've read a lot of commentaries in this study and other studies that I've done, and people that I respect highly, uh, great theologians, believe and have differing opinions, not just on this, but a lot of different things. But again, I think most importantly, and I'll give my opinion here in just a minute, but most importantly, as we study the book of Revelation, it's not necessarily up for us to just debate. That's not why we're studying this. To think, well, I believe this is what John is talking about, and I believe this is what he's referencing. I think most importantly, especially as we've looked at some of these judgments, for the Christian, the application is this. It should compel us to action in the present, meaning that judgment is coming on the world, and really, for the Christian who is still living in sin, doing what they want to do, Judgment is coming to you as well, so it should compel us to move forward and do what God has called us to do, but it should also, also, as I've talked about many times, compel us to move forward in our understanding of the gospel, and understanding that we were created to do something with the gospel as a Christian. We were created to give out the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, and that's what we see in chapter number 10, that no matter what's happening on the earth in the present, in the past, or the future, one thing is certain, God's purposes remain the same, and it's to proclaim the gospel among the nations. And the first thing we see tonight in these first couple verses, and I'll give my take on this, but the first thing I see is that God's word comes with authority. There is authority in God's word. 
John interrupts the devastation for just a moment. And the events of this chapter are really pretty awesome to say the least. And in verse number one, we are given descriptions of this mighty angel. Now, angels are mentioned more than 60 times in Revelation. And the angel is described as mighty, which might suggest of being majestic in nature, as well as the fact that, you know, he is just flat out mammoth. I mean, if he can, you know, have one foot on the sand and one foot on the sea and not just, you know, well, I can do that too. But I mean, literally talking about the whole earth. But in chapter 9, we saw demons ascend out of the abyss. Chapter 9, we see this angel descending, coming down from heaven. Now, there are many, many good scholars, many good theologians that believe this is referencing Jesus Christ. I don't. Here's why. And again, you can have your own opinion on this. And again, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's up for people can interpret it all they want. But nowhere in the New Testament is Jesus ever referred to as an angel. In the Old Testament, he is the angel of the Lord. Uh, it's a kind of a Christophany. But in the New Testament, nowhere is he ever referred to as that. And even when you look back in chapter 1, where we had the views of the indescribable Christ that John gave us in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. To me, John knows who Jesus is. Now, this is, again, my opinion. And this is many other theologians as well. But John knows who Jesus is. So why wouldn't John then reference him as Jesus instead of this mighty angel? Again, that's to me, it's a simple take in a simple approach, but for one reason, angels in the New Testament are referred to as God's messenger, not as Jesus. Jesus has already been identified, so why wouldn't John then identify the one who he knows, the one who he has spent time with? He has seen the resurrected Christ, and he has already referenced him in this book already, but I believe, again, this is just another mighty messenger from Jesus Christ. There are similarities, but again, it is God's messenger. That's, again, my take on that. But this angel is coming from the very presence of the throne room of God himself. It speaks of him being uh, the highest of beings. And the great announcement that he's about to make is an announcement right from the throne room of God himself. And as we kind of go through these descriptions, here's what we see. First of all, he is clothed with a cloud or he is surrounded or wrapped with a cloud. Now, clouds play an important part of Israel's history. God led Israel by a glorious cloud in Exodus chapter 16. Dark clouds covered Sinai when the law was given in Exodus chapter 19. When God appeared to Moses, it was in a cloud of glory in Exodus 24. Uh, Psalm 104 says, He maketh the clouds his chariot. A cloud received Jesus when he ascended to heaven. Uh, and a lot of times in the New Testament especially, when clouds were mentioned, they symbolized judgment. So it's very important. And really understanding this, this description of this mighty angel, he was clothed with the cloud. I believe this symbolizes glory and majesty and power. The second thing we see in this description is this. There is a rainbow, excuse me, upon his head. A rainbow upon his head. Trivia question, quick trivia question. When is the first time a rainbow was mentioned in the Bible? Violet. After the flood. And why? Someone else. Why? Yes, it was God's promise to not flood the earth again. You know, I've talked to some Christians, you know, I've seen some bumper stickers, you know, take back the rainbow. And people are like, what, what is that talking about? Well, the meaning of it is the fact that God is the one that initiated the rainbow and it was a Christian symbol and others have turned it into something, meaning something completely different. And I, I've had an opportunity to talk to some Christians that had no idea 
what the rainbow significant was because all I knew was what culture told them, that it's all for gay and lesbians and this and that. But really, the rainbow is a sign. It's a promise that God will not destroy the earth by flood again. But anyway, it's, it's important. This is, this is a sign of God's covenant faithfulness. And this rainbow upon his head, the significance here, the symbolism is really, it's echoing the story of Noah and the flood. John MacArthur notes, while the cloud symbolizes judgment, the rainbow represents God's covenant mercy in the midst of judgment, that he is continuously merciful, even though we deserve far worse. We continue on the next description. His face is like the sun. As it said, he is clothed with a cloud, has a rainbow upon his head. His face was as it were the sun. Now, this speaks of light, of brightness, of brilliance. Really, I think the reason, because this angel is coming from the very presence of God, the throne room of God. And if you remember the story of Moses in Exodus, when, when he was before God there in the wilderness, his, his face shone. Because in the, in the Old Testament, especially, in, in the Bible says that no man could see the face of God or else, I mean, there, his glory was so great, his glory was so bright. So I believe this is significant, the fact that it speaks of brilliance. Because really, I think he's coming from the very throne room of God, the very presence of God. Continues on. He had feet like fiery pillars. This is a picture of both stability and uncompromising holiness. He had feet like fiery pillars. It's a picture of stability and uncompromising holiness. It continues on, verse number two, and he had in his hand a, a little book open. So what I said is he had a little scroll. That's what it is. He had a little scroll, a little book. Once again, we see authority on full display. This little book, this open scroll, what, what is this in reference to? Anybody know? Anybody have any idea? Yeah, it's the Bible. It's God's word. So it's speaking of the authority of God's word. Now, this is different than the book that is sealed up in chapter 5, but so is this massive angel compared to this, you know, think about this, this massive angel compared to this, this open book in his hand, or this, this little open book in his hand. And it continues on, verse number 2, he has this one foot upon the sea and left foot upon the earth, and he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. His cry is so great that seven thunders speak out. You know, think about when thunder sounds. I mean, it's, it's mighty, it's, it's roaring. But the term seven thunders is an ancient Jewish idiom for the voice of God. The scholar and grammarian Vincent says that the Jews spoke of thunder as the seven voices of God. So it's as if God is speaking himself. Now, again, it's very interesting to note, especially in verse number four, this is the only time when John is told to not write. He's told to seal it up. Don't write down what you have just seen. Again, imagine what he is witnessing, this vision. Imagine what he is hearing, and he's about to write it down. He's in the process of it, and, and right from the throne room of God, he, he hears this voice and says, Nate, don't do it. Don't do it. And again, there's a lot of speculation as to why. Why would God do this? Does anybody know why would God do this? Why would God tell John not to, not to seal it up or not to, not to do it? Violet, do you have any idea? Because we need to have faith in God and not rely on something that we see. 
That's a, good, that's a good point. We need to have faith in God, not rely on something we see. Why else? What do you think? Why do you think God would tell him to seal it up? Anybody? Yeah, think to not let us fully know what's going on. I mean, honestly, there's a lot of answers. They're not necessarily one right answer. It's kind of a trick question in some ways. But really, why would God do this? The answer is simple. We don't know, honestly. We don't know because the Bible is not clear on it. Now, we can speculate as to what we think, and, and both of those answers were very good. But Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says this. This is important. It says, the secret things, you know who they belong to? God. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, the plain answer is simple, that we don't know why God would do this. But I want to give something that's possible just to contemplate, not saying this is true, something that I read in, in some of my commentaries. And again, it's just a possible reason or maybe even a theory, you know, one, one writer said that what this could be is the fact that we do know that there is more that's going to take place than we even realize. You know, Revelation is 22 chapters, and, you know, when you, when you study it, like, wow, that's, I mean, that's a lot of stuff. But really, it's not like day after day after day, 24 hours in the day, everything that's going to happen. So there's a lot more that we don't know. And really, when you think about it, think about how bad it's been versus how bad it might be. Or, think about this. Maybe, maybe, again, it's just, just a theory. Maybe God is saying to seal it up, to shut it up, to not write it down, because as he's about to pour out more judgments, maybe in his mercy he's saying, hold it back. Not saying it's true or not, but it's a thought to consider. So what we have to think about is that as bad as it's going to be, one, we have to realize that it could be far worse, could it not? I mean, it could. You think about God's mercy on full display, the fact that it's, in, in some ways, he is drawing it out. Why is he drawing out? Does God have to draw out judgment? He could speak and everything could be cease to exist, right? Because he spoke and the world started. It existed. So he could speak his voice and everything could just cease to exist, but these judgments are drawing out to show forth his mercy and his grace because why? He wants people to come to him, right? He wants people to be saved. He wants people to hear the gospel. And even though people like in chapter nine are not going to repent, are still gonna live in their wickedness, even as some do today, even though they hear the truth, there are still some that are gonna be saved. And there are still some that are gonna come to an understanding of salvation in, in Jesus Christ. But again, the point that I want to make in reference is the fact that we don't know. But again, this speaks of God's sovereignty, the fact that he is in control. You know, I talk a lot about God's sovereignty, but here's the truth. I don't fully understand God's sovereignty. Does anybody here? No. If you do, you're a liar. None of us do. Amanda and I have had this conversation many times over. I, I think I've used this as an illustration before, but I asked her a question one time and, and she said, all I can say is God is sovereign. And she's like, I don't understand, but he's sovereign, which means he's in control. And in my mind, it doesn't make sense, but he's in control. And that's what we have to understand, that he is in control. We don't understand everything and we're not going to until we get to heaven. Then things will make sense. But 
what we do understand is that God's word, his word that he has left us, has authority. We have the authority because it is from him. We continue on, verse number five. Not only is God's word have authority or is it authoritative, God's word is certain. Verse number five, look what it says. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the things that uh, on the earth and the sea and the things that therein are uh, that, there, that there should be no time no longer. So really what this is saying in verse number six is that time is coming to an end. Everything is about to just happen at a rapid pace. Verse number seven, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. Some of these mysteries that we don't fully know, we don't fully understand. Now, Paul talked about mysteries, the mysteries of God in, in Ephesians, and we have to understand that some of those mysteries that were in the Old Testament have been revealed in the church age. The mystery, the fact that God wants to save people, and he sent his son, Jesus, to save us. But some of these mysteries of God are finally going to be finished, as he had declared to his servants, the prophets, back in the Old Testament. And here's an incredible scene. The angel lifts up his hand towards heaven and takes a solemn oath. And once the oath has been taken, there's a great announcement that there should be time no longer. It literally means there's no more delay. And indicates that the end is coming quickly. God has been delaying his judgments so that lost sinners will have time to repent. But now the end is very near. In the Bible, a mystery is a sacred secret, a truth hidden to those outside but revealed to God's people. And this is when Christ is going to reveal himself to the Christians in heaven, but also to the world. And the point to take is that, and understanding when I say that God's word is certain, is that you can take God and his word to the bank. Meaning that there are promises that have been made in the Old Testament that maybe haven't been revealed yet, haven't been fulfilled. But whatever God promises, he's going to fulfill. He keeps his word. And we have to understand that. Look, I've made promises that I've never intended to keep. You have too. I've made promises that I intended to keep and I didn't keep for one reason or another. But when God makes a promise in his word, you can take it to the bank. That his promises are true. That he is going to vindicate his people from all of the evil that has happened in the world. You think about even the evil that has happened in our own country in 2020. And all of the things that, that we can talk about. Well, God is going to vindicate his saints. And it's going to happen. His word is sure. His word is certain. Even though we have failed him, the truth is God has never failed us and never will fail us. And we have to understand that. We continue on, verse number eight. God's word, yes, it's sure, it's certain, all of those things, but finally, God's word must be assimilated. God's word must be assimilated. Here's what I mean. Let's look at these verses. The Bible says in verse number eight, and the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, go and take that little book, that little scroll, which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went into the angel and <clears throat> said unto him, give me the little book. And he said unto me, take it and eat it up. Now this is referencing of a story in, in the Old Testament. I think it's uh, Zechariah. Wait, Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel. And eat it up and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. 
Now, God's word comes with authority. His promises are certain, but it's of little value. I want you to understand this. It's not in your notes, but understand this. God's word is of little value if we don't take it, read it, feed on it, and proclaim it. Let me say that again. God's word is of little value to us, honestly. Some of us really, here's, here's, here's the truth of what we do. We have Bibles in our houses. We hear messages, listen to podcasts, whatever it is. I encourage you to listen to the podcast that just went live, I think, a couple days or yesterday. But we have the truth of God's word, and here's what we choose to do. We just throw it out, right? We throw it out the window. We throw it off to the side. And you think about it. I have a lot of Bibles. I have a lot of Bibles in my office that I've gotten over the years or people have given me. But it doesn't matter how many Bibles that I have if I don't actually apply what's in it. And it doesn't matter how many Bibles you have. It doesn't matter how many messages you've listened to. It doesn't matter how many times you're here at church on Sunday or Wednesday. I'm here all the time. Well, that's great. But it doesn't matter if you don't actually apply the teaching. If you don't actually do what God is telling you to do. And that's what we have to understand. That's what the significance here and the application is for us. What we see in verse number eight is John is commanded to take the word. Take the word. Both the words go and take are imperatives of command. John is commanded to go to take the book for his spiritual edification. You and I are commanded to take God's word as well. And the significance of this open book is key. You see, for us, there is no intimidating angel to approach. There is an open book called the Bible, called God's Word, that is ready to be taken. But are we willing to take it? All you have to do is go and get it. The next thing that we see in verses 9 and 10, not only are we commanded, or John is commanded to take the Word, but the application for us as well, John is also commanded to feed on the Word. John is told to feed on this book, to devour it, to completely eat it up. Now, is the application for us today to, I want you to take your Bible out. No, that was a weird sound. What? That was. I know, I could, that one creepy voice I did one time. I can't do it again. I know. I forgot about that. I have to go back in my memory bank and pull it up. So what she's talking about, we're completely off subject now. Thank you very much, Amanda. When we were first married, I had this very creepy voice that I used to like, just like whisper in her ear. She loved it, right? I can't remember. It was, it was, yeah, it wasn't like a Smeagol type voice, but it was like my imitation of that. It was worse. Yeah, but anyway, I'll have to try to remember I did it so much, and she loved it, but then, like, she got on me so many times and, like, threatened to kill me, and I think I finally stopped. So anyway, yeah, um, totally off subject, but anyway, what John is not telling us to do is actually take God's Word and actually, like, you know, put it in our mouths and eat it. Feeding on the Word is this. Now, quickly, there's Old Testament imagery here in reference to Ezekiel eating the scroll, but we should take God's Word and Put it into our lives. Put it into our hearts. Apply it. That's what he's saying when he's saying to feed on God's word. It, it does no good of no value if you just, well, I heard it, but I'm not going to apply it. I'm not going to do what God has told me to do. You see, this book is sweet, but it's also bitter. It is honey. The Bible says in Psalm 19, it is 
better than bread in Matthew chapter 4. It is meat. It is milk. But there is a twofold reaction to this book as we eat it up. It is both sweet and bitter. Here's what I mean. It is sweet in our mouths because it reveals the gospel, which is God's goodness and grace. We talked about the, or we sang about the goodness of God tonight. His plans and purposes, his wills and ways, that's how it is sweet. But it is also bitter to our stomachs because it's a word of judgment to unbelievers and a word of persecution and suffering for believers. You see, sometimes as we hear God's word or read God's word or listen to a message, sometimes it just, it's pretty convicting, isn't it? That's that bitterness sometimes that it's not all like, oh man, that was just a sweet message. I just loved it. Everything was great. It's not necessarily all about that. Sometimes it's like, man, that was hard to take. And that's what God's word is because it's trying to help us. Look, there is joy, there is sorrow, there is sweetness, there is bitterness, gladness, and sadness when God's word does its perfect saving and sanctifying work in our lives. And that's the point that we have to take here. And that's what John is, that's why John is commanded to take it, to eat it up, to take it, to apply it. Yes, it's, it's, it's sometimes bitter, it's hard to take, but it's also sweet. There's a perfect balance there. Verse number 11, and he said unto me, thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The final thing here is this. We must proclaim the word. Our purpose is found in his purposes. Did you know that we have been commissioned to carry out the gospels of the world? I've talked about that for some time now, that as a Christian, as a church, God has given us a commission. And as I've said before, there is no plan B. Plan A is us taking his word to the nations. It's not what, well, maybe someone else will do it. We are the someone else that God has commanded. You know, John was there for the, uh, the OC, as I call it, the original commission. Um, he was there for that. Some of you are like, oh, that was awesome. <laughs> Dave was like, oh, I can't believe he said that. Uh, he was there for the original commission. He was there when, when Jesus said, hey, go into the world and, and preach the gospel to, to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost. And really, this passage, as John has already lived his life, you know, some probably five, six decades later, after the fact that Jesus has already gone, he's been now recommissioned. His assignment is our assignment, and it's the same assignment that he already got, to go, to proclaim. And that's what we take from from this passage, and that's what I want to encourage you to understand that we should take God's word, we need to feed on God's word, and we must proclaim God's word. This application is for every generation, for every Christian that has ever lived. But the truth is, most of us don't take God's word, don't feed on it. You can't feed on it if you never open it, if you never read it, if you never listen in church. You can't do anything if you just, you come and you sit and you know, goofing off and joking around and then you go out there and live however you want. That's not an application. That's not applying it. You know, I don't just teach and and preach just to hear my voice because I really don't want to hear it. It's not why I started this podcast. It's to really just try to encourage, to equip, to help us to be engaged in a gospel identity that is living out the gospel, that is understanding our job, our assignment, that our purpose in this life is not for ourselves, It's for his glory, for his honor. And we have to understand that until we are faithful to speak out concerning the bitter realities of God's judgment on sin, then we will not find the word of God as sweet to us as it could be. 
The Old Testament prophets found God's word sweet because of the persecution they experienced for being faithful spokesmen and spokeswomen of God. And sometimes we do not appreciate the sweetness of some things until we have first experienced the sourness of others. Is it not the reason why some people sweeten watermelon with salt? Is it the bitterness of salt which causes us to sense the sweetness of the melon? So too, when we experience opposition and persecution, the sweetness of the word, of God's word, is much more fully sensed and appreciated in our lives. And here's the key truth as I close with this. Despite the opposition of God's enemies, God has commanded his people, or he has given his people his authoritative and trustworthy word, talking about the Bible. And he has commissioned us to proclaim it to the nations. No matter the opposition, no matter the enemy that God has, and he has always had an enemy, the church has always had an enemy, it's nothing new, especially in America. I don't like what's going on, but it's nothing new. The church has always had an enemy. But despite that, he has commanded his people to take his authoritative, his trustworthy word, and he's given us a commission. The commission is to go, to live out the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. As he says in verse number 11 to John, again, that recommissioning, thou must prophesy, thou must proclaim again before many peoples, many nations, many tongues, many kings. To everyone, to everyone you meet, proclaim it. You see, that's a great parenthesis in the study as we've talked about judgments. And now let's get back to ourselves. Let's get back to the application. It's not just about what's happening to the unbeliever, but for the Christian specifically. Take it, feed on it, proclaim it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you.